Amen. It's so good to be together with God's people. Just a couple quick things before we dive in. We're, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Just real quick, if you are a visitor with us, new with us, uh, would love to uh, find out more about us, we have a Get Connected card out at the uh, welcome desk. We'd love for you to fill that out, leave that there with us, and someone will follow up with you. We also have an opportunity uh, today, if you've been visiting with us or new with us, want to learn more about our church and don't have lunch plans currently, we uh, have our Discover class going on right after this. We've got a couple people that were signed up, and we got food for a little bit more. So if you're new, want to learn more about our church, uh, are just hungry, <laughs> feel free to stick around. We don't have a ton of food, but we've got food for a couple who might have been visiting with us and just want to learn more about our church and, uh, and, and, and talk to me a little bit, and we'll go over kind of what our church is and, and what we believe and why we exist. Great opportunity. So if you're able to stay for that, feel free, and uh, that, that uh, will be great. So let's dive in to Second Thessalonians chapter 3, together finishing our study through these two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we, give you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. For such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of God. There's a popular proverb, and some of you may have heard this, that says, Idle hands are the devil's plaything. Ever heard something sort of like that before? Well, th there's, this is one of those popular proverbs that has existed in sort of a number of forms throughout the years. And like many proverbs, it's actually very hard to figure out the origin 
of this proverb. Some find its source in Scripture, and though there's not a text that explicitly says that, there are texts like Proverbs 16.27 that say this. It says, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. There actually is a translation of the Scripture that paraphrases this verse as, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And it actually seems like St. Jerome, all the way back in the 4th century, had a similar idea when he wrote that believers ought to engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. And in this proverb, there really are two sort of values ingrained. One, the danger of idleness, and two, the value of work. And 2 Thessalonians 3 actually instructs us that both of these values are biblical. Both the fleeing of idleness and the value of work. Recall that Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, and basically the whole church had recently become unemployed. (laughs) They had gotten a forged letter claiming to be from the Apostle Paul, telling them that Jesus' return was right around the corner, and so everybody in the church had just walked off their jobs left them and were like, we're just going to hunker down and wait for Jesus to return. It could be any day now. And recall that this issue spanned both of the letters Paul wrote to them. You can look back at this at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Even in his last letter, he said this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, with them all. And here we see Paul putting this verse into action, particularly the command to admonish the idol. And the apostle is writing this letter to get the Thessalonians back to work. But his concern isn't just for their nine to five or their six to two or whatever your schedule might be, but rather he had something far greater than just a job in mind when he told them to get to work. Rather, he calls the Thessalonians to flee idleness in every area of their life and to get busy with good works. See, a nine to five is only a small part of what Paul has in mind here. He has rather in mind the big picture of vocation. Vocation, that may not be a word you use very often, but that's simply whatever God has called you to. Whatever work he has you doing, whether you're a mother a father, a friend, a student, a grandparent, a volunteer, even a member of a church, whatever God has called you to in whatever station of life you're in, he says, be busy in doing that. Be busy in your vocation, in your calling, whatever responsibility in life God has you in, don't be lax in it, but be committed to it. So often, people will hear a sermon on work, and we've got some folks here that may hear, well, well, I'm retired, I don't have to work. But we come to learn that God's vision is that even though you may retire from a career, God never calls us to retire from work until he calls us home. He never calls us to truly just lay back on the couch and do nothing all the time, but rather to get busy in whatever calling God has placed in front of us. And this is what 2 Thessalonians 3 is all about. Here's your main idea. Our main idea is this. We are called to be steadfast in good works. He wants us to be steadfast in good works. And there's two works in particular that he calls these folks to and there's to be steadfast in. First, he starts by saying, be steadfast in prayer. 
Be steadfast in prayer. Before dealing with the idleness that they had at their work, Paul wants them to be steadfast in their faith. He wants to make sure that they have their priorities straight. And he tells them to do this through calling them to pray. And he reminds us that all of us are called to labor in prayer, not just pastors or ministers or leaders. And he mentions this first, reminding us one of the most important things that we can call ourselves toward is to pray. Look at verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. He says, be steadfast in prayer by first, he says, pray for God's word to advance. Pray for God's word to advance. This may seem unusual to us, but Paul often asked churches to make prayer for him a priority. He wrote something like this to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians. We see it here with the Thessalonians. And here we see Paul calling people, churches, to ongoing continual prayer. An ongoing continual prayer that is offensive, not simply defensive, but that the word of God may go forward, that God may be at work outside the walls of their church and outside of the context of their own families. Pray that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored. The image he wants us to get here is of the word of God having two legs like an Olympic runner and speeding ahead as fast as it can toward a world in need of its truth. And it would cause us to ask, when was the last time we prayed for God's word to advance? For God's word to advance down the street in Katy's and in Trigg County to run across the U.S. to places in this country that need the gospel. When was the last time we prayed for it to advance in Haiti and Peru? We can send money to those countries, but we need to meet it with praying for those people that are there doing work. Prayer is the fuel for God's mission in the world. And none of us are able to go everywhere with the word. None of us can fund every good thing that God is doing in the world, but we can pray. We can pray for God's word to speed ahead and be honored. This request is is echoing almost the Lord's prayer where Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how the kingdom comes, through the word of God advancing and being honored being believed. In fact, the refrain of the book of Acts of the early church is that the word of God increased and multiplied. I'd encourage you when you get a chance to look through the book of Acts one day, and it's so interesting, every time you see the word of God increasing, there's going to be two things you're going to see somewhere around it in the context. You're going to, one, see God's people being faithful to preach the word. And two, you're going to see God's people desperately praying for God to do what they couldn't do. Let me show an example of this. Acts chapter 6, the early church is setting aside their first deacons. And let's look what it says there. Acts 6, 6 and 7. These, these deacons, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice, they prayed, 
And they sent them out, and the word of God continued to increase. Prayer fueled this sort of advance of the kingdom and the advance of the word. Friends, there's power in our feet when we go with the gospel, but there is power on our knees, crying out for prayer and strength to God. And hear this, if the apostle Paul needed prayer support, why do we think that we can go without it? I mean, Paul seems like he's got it all together, and he's like, anytime we read, and he's like, guys, I need help. The Holy Spirit is calling us to steadfastness in prayer, beginning with praying for the word of God to advance. But Paul continues. That isn't his only prayer request. He says this. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He says, be steadfast in prayer by praying for the word of God to advance. But also, he says, pray for God's protection. Pray for God's protection. He doesn't simply go on the offensive of praying that God's word would go out, but he also goes on the defensive of praying for deliverance. He prays for the Lord to establish them, and to guard them against earthly forces and against members of the kingdom of darkness. I want us to notice that Paul calls on these believers to pray for protection against forces of evil. Certainly we can hear Jesus' own model prayer again, deliver us from evil. Because you'll, you'll learn this, everywhere the word of God is going forth, opposition always mounts. Opposition always mounts as God's word goes forth. In fact, the time of the church's greatest advance is often the time when protection is the most needed. Right after the prayer and multiplication we saw in Acts 6, one of the deacons they raised up named Stephen is martyred. And Stephen, as he is standing up and praying and preaching, here's what he says, Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Look what he says. He says, and, tell, and, and he fell on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And we see that standing there that day was one Saul of Tarshish, who is the apostle Paul, whom the Lord would dramatically rescue and redeem, and who's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Acts chapter 8, it continues that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So prayers, prayer came, the word of God was increasing, persecution arose, including Saul. And it says that the people of God, notice, except the apostles, spread throughout the region, preaching the word of God. And Paul here is asking for prayer to say, Oh Lord, deliver us from evil and establish and guard us. Friends, this may sometimes look like what happened to Stephen. Stephen got martyred into the world. That looked like a loss. But friends, Stephen was martyred. And there he prayed that God would not hold it against them. And one of those who was standing there, God would transform 
to become the, the greatest apostle that all of us can think of, the Apostle Paul. Friends, guarding and protecting us from evil can look all sorts of ways. God delivering us from evil may not mean we don't experience the pains of evil. It may simply mean that evil won't get the last word. That Stephen's death was not in vain. We're reminded, verse 3, it says that the Lord is faithful. Pray for God to protect us from evil, that the word of God might increase and multiply, and that even people who were God's enemies might be converted to become God's messengers. So many times when we encounter evil, we want to lean on our own wisdom or or our own authority. But Paul says, pray. Pray to the Lord. He calls this congregation to be steadfast in prayer, praying for God's word to increase, praying for God's protection. And third, he says, pray for confidence in God's work. Pray for confidence in God's work. Work. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In light of all this, Paul was confident in God's work in them. They were doing what they were called to do. They were living faithfully, even if imperfectly, and he calls them to continue in their steadfastness for Christ. They're not wavering, not running, not hiding, not to simply hunker down and wait for the end, but to press forward and to be steadfast in good works, to be steadfast in their own personal prayer, their own personal Bible reading and devotion, but also to be steadfast in gathered prayer and gathered worship. He says, be steadfast in faith, steadfast for Christ. He says, be steadfast in good works. That's what he's calling us toward. And he begins by calling us toward steadfastness in prayer. But the Holy Spirit has more to say than that, right? He has the rest of the chapter. He devotes not simply to steadfastness in prayer, but second, to be steadfast at work. Steadfast in prayer, but steadfast in work, at work. He tells the Thessalonians to get back to work, to get back to their jobs. And why actually gives us three reasons why they should remain steadfast in their vocations. And he says, first, that work gives purpose. The first thing he says is, get back to work, be steadfast in it, because work gives purpose. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, though I might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. He says, keep away from idleness as it wasn't a part of anything that they taught them or the lives that they themselves lived. He says in verse 7 and verse 9 that the, they worked as an example to imitate. 
They were not idle and living off the charity of others, nor eating other people's bread without paying for it, but they toiled and labored night and day not to be a burden to anyone. We, we can come to find out in the book of Acts that Paul, alongside his preaching, lived often as a tent maker to support himself and his ministry. And he says, follow our example by working diligently. Paul sets an example of hard work in his apostolic work and in just his regular work. And he shows us something that might sound countercultural but is biblical to its core, and it is that work is good. This might be countercultural in our world today, but work is a good thing. Look at verse 13. In the context of all of this, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And the context of all of this is their vocation, their jobs, their callings that God has put in front of them. Remember, back in the book of Genesis, God created man and put him in the garden, and he called him to work and to keep. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. And let me remember, Genesis 2 comes before the entrance of sin into the world. Let me tell you, sin and the fall didn't create work, but it did make it more difficult. Look over Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. God tells us after Adam has fallen into sin that one of the curses upon man is this. That by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He says, hey, you're going to sweat while you work. Life is going to be difficult. Life isn't going to be easy. But work isn't a response of sin. The difficulty is, here's why I'm telling you all this, that work is ingrained in creation. It was created by God, and it was called very good. And while sin has often made it difficult, it corrupts all of good gifts. Work itself is given by God for our good. And to forsake work is to forsake something good that God creates us for. This is why the apostles gave themselves to work as an example. He tells us that idleness is sin. Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul's got strong language here. The Apostle Paul is not in a good mood about this. Look at this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. What he's saying there is, hey, make sure you're not influenced by other folks. He's like, well, you're out here working, seeing somebody over there that's close to you, just sitting on the couch. It looks real appealing, and you might fall into that same trap. He's like, be careful. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In fact, he says, make sure you're not influenced by their idleness. Idleness is contagious, so be careful. He also says we need to be mindful how we speak about those who are idle, right? He said, hey, don't treat them as an enemy. Warn them as if they were family, That idleness will kill not only their body, but their soul. 
that work is good. The calling God has given you is good. It gives purpose. It's what we were ultimately created for. And again, I'd remind you, this doesn't simply mean that God has called you to grind away at your current nine to five forever. Whether if you're a stay-at-home mom, you work really hard. <laughs> if you're retired and, and, and that's great, there's still callings God has put around you, whether to be a grandparent, a volunteer, a church member, whatever it is that God has put in front of you. He says, don't be idle in it. You were created to do that. But Paul has more to say. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He says work gives purpose. But second, he says work provides. Work provides. Be steadfast in this because it gives you purpose. It's part of why God created you. But he also said God has given you work in order to provide for yourself, for your family, and from others. Friends, if we have learned anything from the current world we live in, it's that joblessness impacts more than just the person without the job. If farmers don't farm, not only does the farmer not eat, but friends, we're not going to eat. <laughs> right? That economics and society as a whole is built on a foundation of work and that idleness impacts everyone in one way or another. And here Paul reminds them of what he told them while he was with them. If someone will not work, they will not eat. And the emphasis here is on will not, a willful unwillingness to work, not joblessness created by sickness or disability or other factors. He says that if you won't work, ultimately, you may not end up having everything that you need. It's a pretty simple math equation in the, Apostles Paul mind, in the Apostle Paul's mind. He even goes on to say this, 1 Timothy 5.8. Look at this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Look what he says. He's like, if you're not willing to work and provide for the folks, for your closest neighbor... You know, he says, love your neighbor, and he literally means, like, start by looking around your house. And he says, if you're not willing to work and be able to provide for them, he says, hey, I don't have anything for you. You've denied the faith and are worse than a non-believer. Idleness and willful, and, and this sort of willful idleness is a sin. And friends, a job is a blessing. A vocation is a blessing. It provides purpose for your life. It provides for the welfare of you and for your family. And friends, God is pleased with the work you do if you do it diligently and ultimately do it for him. Consider what Paul wrote over in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Hear this. Whatever you do, you can do in service to Jesus, and Jesus can be proud of your efforts. Mothers, grandmothers, you serve Jesus with your efforts. And he says, you may not always get it from your kids, but there is an inheritance waiting you from the Son of God, whether your sons or your daughters recognize it now or not. 
teachers, faculty, staff who stand in the gap at the school, you serve Jesus as you seek to be faithful. And it says, hey, there is an inheritance waiting for you from the Lord Christ, whether the culture around you, the kids you serve every day, or whether your boss recognizes it or not. Whether you're a medical professional, customer service, whether you you build things or serve in many different ways, whatever it is, if it's done for the Lord, it is pleasing to the Lord. So many people think that, well, if I want to please please the Lord, i got to go get into ministry. He says, no, where you work is ultimately a ministry. If it's done for the Lord and done out of love for others, work is... Hear this, is even a channel of God's common grace, his love for mankind channeled to the world. When you make a good product or you provide good customer service or if you're a teacher and go above and beyond, whatever it is, if you are working diligently and as to the Lord, God is working through you. And he is showing the world what he's like because God always does good work, doesn't he? And it's like, hey, this is what God's like. And you're displaying God's love to others. Let me tell you this. When you make some really good food and I get to eat it, I'm like, God loves me. (laughs) Right? And whatever you do, when you provide good service, whatever it is that you do, when you do it well and do it diligently, you're telling that person, God loves you. You are a conduit of God's blessing to the world. Friends, good teachers, good cooks, good mothers are a blessing even to bad people. God is displaying his love and his grace through you. Work gives purpose. Work provides, not just for you and for your family, but for others. And finally, Paul tells us that work encourages privacy. Work encourages privacy. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul relates, or deals with something all of us can relate to, busybodies, gossips, people who just can't mind their own business. Whether they're on Facebook, always sort of in other people's bigness, they're always texting or calling about the latest gossip, they're consumed with the latest news or with other people's business. He said, rather than being busy at work, they are busy bodies. And he says, if you're consumed with busy bodiness, what is, what is Paul's cure for you? Get to work. He says, work quietly and earn your own living. See, Not all busyness is a good thing. You can be busy doing all the wrong things. And so rather than maximizing your time for the good of others and for the glory of God, some people stay busy all up in everybody else's business. And he says, you can't be concerned with your own work if if you're concerned with everybody else's work. So here it is. If you are always in the middle of gossip, drama, and issues, and you're like, what if the world is wrong? The Holy Spirit's medicine for you is maybe you need to get a job, a hobby, something to keep you busy. Because, friends, the devil will always keep you busy with something. It just may not be what is good for you. 
Friends, this isn't the first time the Apostle Paul said this. 1 Thessalonians 4, we looked at it about a month ago. Look what he says there, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. Another translation, mind your own business. To work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Work done quietly, diligently, and independently is good. It glorifies God and serves others. And friends, it just keeps you out of so much trouble. So Paul says, get to work. (laughs) Friends, the old proverb had had it right. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. It doesn't have to necessarily be explicitly in Scripture, but it certainly is true, right? Paul warns us not to be idle to keep away from the influence of those things that would make us idle and to get to work, to be steadfast in good works. And friends, when, when he asks us to do this, God is actually asking us to image him as we do this. You hear all the time, you know, if you've been in church a long time, it's like man was created in the image of God. And that's true. And to be made in the image of God is both a noun and a verb. It's something we are and something we do. We are made in the image of God, and as we live as God would have us to live, we are imaging God. Remember, God himself worked, right? Six days, he worked and created the world, and on the seventh, he rested. And it wasn't that God got tired and needed to go sit back on the couch. Friends, God doesn't need a couch, <laughs> But rather, he did it to set an example for us. He said, you're called to work, but you're also called to rest. In fact, this is what Jesus said in response to a controversy about the Sabbath and the day of rest in his own day. He said this, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, Jesus and the father are constantly at work because they uphold the universe by the word of their power. And consider this. Jesus, who is the upholder of the world, came to earth and lived a fully human life. And that human life involved work. We don't give much thought to the reality that Jesus spent most of his life as a carpenter. If you do carpentry in here, you're more like Jesus than the rest of us, is what he's saying, right? He worked hard. He sweated. He likely got cut by wooden nails. He likely stubbed his finger with a hammer. And he worked for nearly 30 years in quiet and obscurity before his ministry began. Have you ever thought about that? We get in the Gospels, his birth story, a little bit of his early childhood, and then it just jumps to the last three years of his life. But there's a whole bunch of work in between there. Our Savior knows what it is to work, and he also knows what it is to suffer from his work. Friends, it shouldn't be lost in us that Jesus, who was a worker of wood, would die upon a piece of wood. That the one who nailed, who hammered nails into wood would have his hands hammered with nails into wood. That the one who would uphold the universe was himself upheld on a cross. And there the Bible says he was crushed smitten by God and afflicted. Paul wrote this, Galatians chapter 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone at cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. To be hung on wood, whether a tree or a cross, was to be cursed, shamed, 
outcasted, to be the lowest of the low. And at the cross, the perfect, sinless Son of God became that for us. He had work none of us could ever imagine so that the blessings of righteousness, forgiveness, and adoption might be ours through repentance and faith. Jesus worked quietly in his work as a carpenter, but he also worked diligently in his work as our Savior. He set his focus on the cross, set before him, and during its shame, he died so that the idol, the cursed, the broken, the sinner, he died in their place to recreate them. And that means if you need a new start today, it is found in Jesus. If you're in need of forgiveness from crushing weights of guilt and shame, it is found in Jesus. If you're in need of power to overcome your idleness and get off the couch, it's available in Jesus. Because Jesus came to give us rest, not so that we might have license to laziness, but in order to power us for work, for a mission. Here's the last, last couple of things I want to read. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, God has given us all work to do. And through his cross and the empty tomb, he's not left us without the power to accomplish every calling, every vocation in our life for his glory. In fact, Paul has bookmarked this passage passage with two benedictions, one at the end of chapter 3, where he asks for peace to be upon us, but he also asks at the beginning of this passage for the blessing of God's power. And I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, sums up our incredible calling and the incredible resources that are ours, and may it be what we pray together. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Every one of them, the God of grace and hope and mercy is able to establish and empower you today in everything. And so may we respond to this by clinging to Jesus as our hope and going into the world and whatever we do this week, representing and serving him. Let us pray together. Father God, we're so thankful that you have given us work. It is a good thing. It is a way that we reflect you and reflect your priorities in this world. But Lord, we're also thankful when you came to earth as our Savior and lived a fully human life in our place that you worked. You worked, yes, as a carpenter. You got your hands dirty and you bled and all of those things. But in your work as as our Savior, the Bible says you set your face firmly toward Jerusalem, toward all that was there. You did not flinch. You did not question. You did not hold back. But you endured the cross, scorning its shame, setting your eyes and your hope and and all of of your attention there for us. That you might save us and serve us and bring us into relationship with you through your cross and then through your empty tomb. And we know that you're alive today 
and able to save any who would right now call upon your name to save them. That you would call them away from whatever work or idleness they're living in and turn their work into into serving you and whatever they do and give them a new purpose and a new direction in their life. We know that all who are in Christ are new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So I ask that if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice who has not called upon you to save them from their sins, that they would do that right now. Knowing they don't have to have all the right words to say, but that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And also, Lord, that you would call us all to consider our work and to call us and establish us in every good work and word. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is much to be done in this city. Let's sing the last part of that song together, starting with there is is nothing. If you're staying for the Discover class, it's in the back room past the kitchen to the right. We'll gather there. You're welcome to go ahead and head back there, but we'll probably start in about 10, 15 minutes or so. So again, feel free. There's sandwiches and some chili. And again, that's for folks that want to learn more about our church and come uh, come maybe to join and be a part of uh, our family here. But we close this service with a benediction, which is a blessing, sending us out into the world with work to be done to keep Jesus first and central. And this benediction comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.